Kia ora, you're listening to a Coalesce Produce podcast, PhD Unpacked. So in this case, you would have been discriminated against on the basis of statistics for a group of which you're a member, namely the group of people who smoke, regardless of your personal productivity. I mean, you might happen to be a very productive worker. A podcast where we unpack a PhD thesis over the course of 30 minutes. While employers could look at the fact that they were in prison when they were 18, or employers could look at something like what they've been doing over the last year in terms of upskilling, one of these is a static factor, it's never going to change. The other one is a dynamic factor. Looking at those sorts of factors better respects people's agency and autonomy. At PhD Unpacked, we're focused on bridging the gap between research by academics and community experiences in New Zealand. Not everyone has the time to read through a 100,000 word thesis, so we decided to sit down with the authors themselves and breeze through the tidbits and juicy details without all the academic jargon. That may mean that at certain points during the episode, I'll summarize what both James and the author have said. Speaking of which, as well as hearing my voice, you'll hear the voice of the host, James. Kia James and the team have read through the entire thesis to ensure that we ask the right questions and get to the core of why this is important to Aotearoa. I'm Yelena, and I'll be the narrator throughout the seven-part series and beyond. While James was in the room with the interviewees, I'll be sitting beside you, like that one friend watching their favourite movie, who chimes in every now and again, fills in the gaps, and makes sure you don't miss any of the good bits, or laughs at James' expense. Whenever you hear the podcast beats... You know I'm about to come in and say something profound, life-changing, and hopefully meaningful. Today we are joined by Dr. Vanessa Scholes to discuss her thesis, You Are Not Worth the Risk, The Ethics of Statistical Discrimination in Organizational Selection of Applicants. Dr. Scholes has over two decades experience writing and facilitating online courses in applied ethics and tertiary learning. Vanessa has worked in both course coordinator and lecturer roles at Tarangawaka, Victoria University of Wellington, in the philosophy department, and is currently developing new innovations for adult online learning. As with everything, the why is central to our understanding, so we start the corridor off with James and Vanessa talking about why she chose to do this particular PhD. Firstly, I guess where, where it makes sense to begin is to ask you briefly, can you tell us how and, and why you embarked on the specific PhD journey with the, the thesis that you ultimately ended up writing? Right, well, it basically all started when I did a class in classical studies at high school and we looked at Plato and Socrates and I got bitten by a philosophy bug. When I went on to do further study at university, I did a master's thesis in Aristotle's account of ethical development. And I started work at the Open Polytechnic Kuratini Tufra, and they were very supportive of people doing further study there. So I started looking at the issue of statistical discrimination in hiring. There was a particular paper I read which was arguing the ethics of workplace drug testing. And I was familiar with discussions of workplace drug testing in terms of the safety issues. Is it all right to override the um, individual's right to privacy in order to secure the safety of other people in the workplace when it comes to drug testing? But this paper made a different argument. It said, well, if there's evidence that shows that the group of people who take drugs as a whole is less productive than the group of people who doesn't, then 
can't employers do drug tests on employees in order to ensure they get the most productive employees for the work? And that, I thought, was a really interesting and different argument, and it was one that I wanted to look into further. So I started doing some writing on this, this idea of being able to be discriminated against on the basis of statistics that apply to a group that you're part of. And I sent off a paper to Dr. Raman Das at Victoria University and said, would this be the sort of thing that I could do a PhD on? And he came back and said, yes, indeed, and we'd love to have you. And so um, Raman was my primary supervisor and Professor Simon Keller was my secondary supervisor for my PhD at Victoria University. So can we begin with this idea of statistical discrimination? What does it mean and how would you best define it, I guess, in in layman's terms for people who are going, what is that? (laughs) Sure. Statistical discrimination is basically treating one person differently from another due to risk statistics for a group of which they're a part. So I can give an example. Suppose that we have a landlord called Jared who gets plenty of applications for each property he lists. And Jared has read research that had statistics showing that tenants who move residents twice in one year or more are significantly higher at risk of defaulting on their rent payments. So Jared decides to include a tick box on his tenancy applicant forms asking how many house moves an applicant has done over the last year. And if it's more than one, Jared simply discards the application. So now it could be that several tenancy applicants have just had bad luck with having to move and they would actually be very good rent payers but they're a part of this riskier group according to the statistics and so they get discriminated against on the basis of the group risk. Now underpinning the idea of statistical discrimination is the notion of empirical research leading to quantifiable risk, which are probably the biggest and most academic-y words you'll ever hear me say, but don't worry, I will define them for you. So firstly, empirical research This can be described as a type of research that is based on observations. For example, running tests and deriving knowledge from actual experiences rather than from theory or belief. Essentially, I've observed some sort of measurement and come up with some analysis as opposed to sitting in a room by myself and coming up with some random theory. Quantifiable risk? That's just a risk that I can calculate. As Vanessa puts it, Risk is when there's a concern that something might happen and you do have enough information to estimate the chances. A quick example here. Let me grab this coin real quick. Heads, I go home and cook a dusty breakfast. Tails, I get a goods cafe almond croissant. So by Vanessa's definition, I'm concerned that I may have to cook. And I do have enough information to estimate the chances. 50%. So this is a quantifiable risk. So going back to the job hiring example, where you're looking at drug users versus non-drug users, we're in a position now where there has been empirical research completed and a risk to productivity can be calculated. Previous research has shown that drug use has been associated with lower productivity, so we can assign a quantifiable risk to said productivity, only for the group of applicants who took yes to being a drug user. And if we decided to screen out all of those people who took yes to being a drug user, Ding, 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 you are correct. We have statistical discrimination. Okay, sorry, I got that the same time you did, so I was a bit excited, but I'll pass the mic back to Vanessa as she finishes off this point for me. So the more research there is, the more basis there'll be for the sort of statistical discrimination that I've been describing.
Right. And we'll dive into, I guess, some specific examples later on with how statistical discrimination applies to this sort of hiring practice. But before we get to that, could you differentiate between this idea of statistical discrimination and a separate idea, which is taste discrimination? What gets referred to as taste discrimination is probably what most people think of when they think of the term discrimination. It's where someone might have, for example, a thoroughgoing bias against a group of people. So someone might be biased against an ethnic group and they might try to avoid members of the group across contexts in their life, such as work or study or friendships and home life. So bias is like a wholesale aversion to a group. We see it in concepts like misogyny and homophobia. So that's what's called a, a categorical taste preference in terms of discrimination. We can also get contingent preferences when it comes to discrimination. So this is a preference to avoid members of a group in a particular context only rather than across all contexts. So for example, a person might have no aversion to working or studying with people of a particular ethnicity, but they'd be averse to having a person of that ethnicity as a partner or an intimate friend or a person might have female friends but be prejudiced against having a female boss. So these are the sorts of discriminations I think that most people think of when it comes to the term discrimination, and they get called taste discriminations because they're based on a personal preference or personal taste that the discriminator has. So taste discrimination could also apply to all sorts of things, like you might be, uh, you know, prefer people that come out of Auckland University compared to Christchurch <laughs> University, or, you know, you might prefer people that were born on Wednesdays as opposed to weekends. It can apply to, to a lot of different features, right? But mm-hmm. they exist within this idea of you discriminating based on what uh, you have a preference for, rather yes. than statistical discrimination, which comes from these uh, studies, empirical research, that suggests that one group group might be more productive than another group, say. Yeah, exactly. So there are some key differences between statistical discrimination and the taste-based discrimination. So one of them is motive. So the main difference here is that with, when it comes to dis- statistical discrimination, the discriminator is not motivated by personal bias or personal prejudice. Instead, they want to reduce a risk. So with Jared the landlord, he has no personal problem with people who have moved house twice in a year. He doesn't care if his boss at work has you know, moved house six times in a year. Um, he's quite happy to have a beer at the pub with someone who's moved several times in a year. It's just looking at how a tenant who is applying for tenancy with him, that's that situation where someone who has moved several times in a year and looking at the statistics on that suggests that it's going to be a risk to his business. So the motive is is different. It's not a personal one. It's connected with reducing risk for his business in this sense. But it doesn't always have to be the risk to the person who's making the decision. So suppose that women on social welfare benefits receive access to some educational initiatives via recommendations from social workers. And suppose that researchers combing through statistics discovered a correlation between women who have partners in prison and lower success rates in the educational initiatives. So suppose we have a social worker who reads this research and decides not to offer access to educational initiatives to women whose partners are in prison. So instead, the social worker offers the positions to other women on benefits who would be next in line for the initiative. So here we have a situation where the social worker is not doing something to benefit herself personally. It's more about what she sees as a good use of the resources she has at her disposal. 
The other thing that's different with this example compared with the, some of the taste discriminations that we talked about is that when it comes to taste-based discrimination, the groups that get discriminated against are what are referred to as socially salient groups. So they're groups that are easily identifiable in society. So these could be groups such as ethnicity, uh, it could be uh, religious affiliation. So these are groups that we find easy enough to identify in society, whereas the group women whose partners are in prison is, is not a socially salient group. It's not something that we identify uh, e easily just by looking at someone or knowing a bit about them. So a difference with statistical discrimination is that it can pick up on groups that are not socially salient groups and have discrimination based on those groups as well. The other difference, I think, with statistical discrimination is that it may bring wider benefits. So with taste discrimination, uh, I guess there may be some benefit to the discriminator if they feel more comfortable through <laughs> discriminating the way they do. Um, but there's not really any benefit to, to anyone else. Whereas with statistical discrimination, it might make for a more efficient use of resources, for example. So that could be wider benefits to society if that's the case. I want to touch briefly on two more definitions, and the first being this concept of, of moral concern. Could you unpack moral concern a little bit for us? Sure. Oh, when it comes to the moral concern with statistical discrimination, I think a key thing is that it's judging people on the basis of group risk, and I think that's a fairly degrading lens through which to view anyone. So the, the group aspect of it strips us of our individualised features, it, so it ignores our identity as an individual. And then the risk element of it presents us as posing a threat that needs to be mitigated. So I think there's something valuable about trying to treat people as individual agents that the risk-based statistical discrimination doesn't really allow for. And it's something that could perhaps make it morally preferable to at least try to treat people as individuals. I think it's captured in the idea of valuing people being able to work towards achieving their own ends. So the concept of agency, people having this agency, being able to work toward getting their own ends. And in part, that they can do this through setting and following principles for themselves. So the basic idea of autonomy. And if we treat a person differently just because she belongs to a particular group, we may not make an effort to take account of the ways that she's exercised choices that differentiate her from the group and it means especially like with the example of Jared where he has got someone to, to tick a box and on that one feature has discarded the whole application he's deciding which feature of the person basically the feature of them belonging to this group uh, is going to count for everything in terms of his assessment of them so that's exercising quite a bit of power there as well which I think is a moral concern. So now that we understand a little better what statistical discrimination is, can you outline how it typically presents itself, perhaps focusing specifically on this idea of uh, workplace hiring practices? When we think of this idea of statistical discrimination within the workplace, how does it manifest itself within the hiring practice specifically? Okay, I think... Probably the most morally concerning forms of statistical discrimination are right near the start of the application process when someone is completing a form, for example, and they're asked to briefly tick some boxes which give information about themselves. And then they might be judged at that point and potentially have their application dismissed without the, an employer looking further at their 
work history or qualifications or experiences or anything that they see as being part of themselves that makes them a good candidate for the job. So as a hypothetical example, suppose you are completing a job application form and one box on the form asks if you smoke and you tick yes. And when you submit the job application, your whole application is rejected unseen. And it turns out the manager decided that if she had a large number of applicants, she'd screen out applicants who ticked the smoker box because she'd read empirical studies suggesting that smokers as a group are bigger productivity risks than non-smokers. So in this case, you would have been discriminated against on the basis of statistics for a group of which you're a member, namely the group of people who smoke, regardless of your personal productivity. I mean, you might happen to be a very productive worker. So this is statistical discrimination in the hiring context, just being treated differently due to group risk statistics. This example of, you know, do you smoke or do you not smoke might be a question that you as an applicant see and you think, well, essentially, why is this relevant to mm -hmm. my performance or ability to uh, contribute to the company that you are ultimately trying to be employed by? Well, exactly. I mean, unless... Uh, the job is one working for a smoking sensation helpline or something like that, it, it really doesn't seem relevant. And we know that, uh, or at least I can speak to, to personal experience and, and experiences of, of friends and colleagues, that it is it, it really does happen that if you tick a box that can be sort of seen as something that is sort of immediately putting in the the not part of the next stage of hiring process that can completely derail you from a job application even if you're a, a brilliant applicant for it. I, I have a friend who recently applied for a job and knows that the, the job uh, didn't just screen her out for one of the boxes. She doesn't know which one it was because ultimately she sent them an email afterwards and said, I'd just love some feedback on why I wasn't right for the role. And the people that emailed back said, you have a brilliant CV, you have brilliant experience, we think you'd be great, and ultimately hired that person. So somewhere along the lines, a right. box was ticked that led to some form of statistical discrimination, I would suggest, that sort of disregarded someone who was the, the perfect applicant for a job. So... These, these box tickings, uh, the, the box ticking system really can lead to, I guess, people being unfairly uh, discriminated against uh, in ways that perhaps you, you wouldn't expect or, or want to happen when you're applying for a job. And this brings us to this, this question of, of something being morally problematic or perhaps not. Is statistical discrimination morally problematic? I ask that as an open question, not necessarily expecting uh, a, a direct answer, but that's the kind of question that I, I want to pop out. Sure. So I think you're right. That it's a key ethical issue in risk-based statistical discrimination. It can be seen as a conflict of liberties, basically. The liberty for applicants to access employment opportunities as an individual agent versus the liberty of employers to access information to try and improve their workforce productivity. As a hypothetical example, suppose that there are many applicants for IT jobs in Jordan and applicants take pains to study appropriate courses and they work on IT projects in their spare time and they build portfolios of their skills. So all things that would seem to have an obvious causal connection to securing and doing well at an IT job. However, computer algorithms detect a reliable statistical correlation between liking opera and better work performance in the Jordanian IT industry. 
So suppose employers use the factor of liking opera to screen applicants because they have a large number of applicants for the job. But it's not clear how liking opera improves IT capabilities. I think when people apply for a job, it seems reasonable that it's the outcomes of their work-related activity that they put forward and expect to be judged on. You don't expect to be screened out of a job application process or to have your application downgraded due to statistics for a group of which you're a member, especially when this has no clear causal connection to the job. And I think this impacts on people's agency because it blocks people from being able to take actions to work toward the job when things like this are used. Something that I want to bring up that you touch on within your PhD is removed from this idea of a hiring context, and that's looking at uh, statistical discrimination or gathering of data within tertiary contexts and gathering data on people who are seeking tertiary education and this idea that sometimes institutions want to gather data for the benefit of the, the people coming in. This idea that, you know, if you know more about how people learn, uh, then ultimately you can assist them in their learning process. So I wondered if you could talk about that briefly and, and how, I guess, data gathering within that context may be very helpful to the people who uh, are actually providing the data. One of the things I argue in my thesis is that the morality of statistical discrimination can depend on the purpose of the organisation that's engaging in the statistical discrimination. So suppose you have tertiary institutions that are collecting information from um, incoming students, and this could be demographic information as well as information about their past study history. And they're looking for uh, which features are correlated with a higher chance of students dropping out or failing. And so these are students who present a bigger risk, as it were, in terms of dropping out or failing. However, the reason the institutions are looking for these features and trying to identify these students is so that they can put in place extra resources for these students to stop them from dropping out or failing. So this seems to be a situation where you have statistical discrimination, so you know, looking for group risk features and identifying some students and treating them differently on the basis of it, but you're doing it to try to benefit those students to try to, try to prevent a bad outcome. Of course, it could also be done with a bad purpose, so it could be that institutions could try to um, identify these students who pose a higher risk and try to discourage them from attending or encourage them toward other institutions. So yes, it would depend on the organisation's purpose. Even if some, an institution is trying to help someone or provide more resources, that person might feel offended or like they're being treated in an inappropriate way if in fact they don't need or want those extra resources if they're getting bothered by phone calls offering help every other week just because they come from a certain demographic for example and they think why am I being targeted in this way I have the capabilities to do this fine myself and and yet the institution is not treating me like I do so yeah. So as we consider the, the liberty of individuals, you, you mentioned in your PhD this idea of sort of standards for analysing an applicant as an individual with uh, varying standards. Could you touch briefly on these, these ideas of, of how you can uh, analyse an applicant as an individual and standards around that? When it comes to looking at statistics, to try to focus more on dynamic, what we call dynamic statistics, and less on static features of an individual. So a static feature of an individual is uh, something that they did in the past, for example. So if they had, um, if they 
went to prison when they were 18 and they're now 40. The fact that they went to prison when they were 18 is, is something that's a feature of them for their whole life, but it's, it's a static feature, it was in the past. So whereas a dynamic feature is something that can change over time. So something to do with uh, someone's age, for example, is a dynamic feature. So they were 18 at that time, but now they're 40 or whatever, and things are quite different now that they're 40 than when they were 18. So someone's age is a dynamic factor that, that changes over time. But also people's behaviours over a certain period of time are d dynamic factors, and the skills that they can gain Someone who takes uh, night classes, for example, can develop some different skills over the space of, of a year. So it's a question of, well, employers could look at the fact that they were in prison when they were 18, or employers could look at something like what they've been doing over the last year in terms of upskilling. One of these is a static factor. It's never going to change. The other one is a dynamic factor. Looking at those sorts of factors better respects people's agency and autonomy, even if you're still looking at a group risk statistic there. Something that I think of when I consider this idea of dynamic factors rather than static factors, uh, at least for my age group, is I find, you know, when you finish school, you put all your school achievements on, on your CV because that's kind of what you have to hang your hat on. And then ultimately, as you get older and older and older, the further away you get away from those uh, achievements, they start to feel like they're, they're not relevant. And I guess that is an example of how features that might appear relevant at a certain stage, perhaps closer in time proximity to when they occurred might be relevant. But you know, you compare sort of being 18 to, to being 40. Ultimately, once you've had a few jobs and you've gained more experience, perhaps what you uh, studied at school or even what school you went to start to bec uh, become less relevant in a lot of contexts. And that's something I can definitely relate this to as people change their CVs and update their LinkedIn's. You know, we consider what have people been doing recently rather than what static elements have occurred in their life that maybe actually we shouldn't consider within, say, a hiring context specifically. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the potential difficulties there is that sometimes static factors, despite the fact that they are static, can be quite predictive. So, for example, whether someone was particularly truant at school might be a factor which can be predictive in terms of their later behaviour, despite the fact that it's something that occurred back when they were at school. Another takeaway that you suggest is regarding transparency, particularly with uh, companies or institutions with, I guess, the analytics that they're using and the reason why they are asking questions. Why is that such a big takeaway? It might be an obvious question, but when we think about transparency of, of process, that is clearly a, a key takeaway to consider when we think about statistical discrimination. So... If employers are transparent about their use of statistical discrimination, this will facilitate consent on the part of applicants. Primarily, transparency is necessary for minimal consent on to the process of applying on the part of applicants. For example, if you're applying for insurance, you know that you're the people who are assessing you are going to put you into different categories based on your group risk. So if you're a young white male applying for car insurance, you're going to be put into a particular category, a particular risk category that's going to be different from if you were um, an older woman applying for car insurance. And when you apply for insurance, people expect to be 
treated on the basis of those group risk categories, and it's fairly transparent in the insurance application, you know, what you, the factors that they're asking for, and that you know that this is going to happen. But I think people don't expect to be treated this way when they're applying for jobs. So I think if employers are going to be doing this, then being more upfront and transparent about it gives applicants more of a chance to consent to what's going on in the whole job process. There is an issue with bias and discrimination that's separate from statistical discrimination, of course, and that's just uh, the unconscious bias um, that that all of us carry in some respects. And I think there are now um, good programs available that uh, employers can use to sort of work through unconscious bias and learn how to um, mitigate this when it comes to uh, employment situations, when it comes to doing interviews, when it comes to reading through CVs. Um, So I think there's definitely progress being made on that front. Um, The other thing to think about, I guess, is given that we know that there is unconscious bias, if we have things like uh, more use of forms with box ticking where it's less of an individual judgment and therefore less availability for unconscious bias to come in, that's also something to be considered. That It could be that some use of statistical discrimination is preferable in the sense that it doesn't allow that unconscious bias in the same way. But I think one thing um, in the New Zealand context that it would be good for employers to think about is the use of a a checkbox on criminal record. So there will be some jobs which require police vetting. So, of course, in those jobs, you know, you need to have checkboxes on criminal record. But for jobs that don't require police vetting, especially if the job is not something like an accountant where you might need to check on fraud convictions, just for like a a normal job, whether you have a, a box on criminal record, I think it's important to think about the the need for that because it does make it a lot harder for people with past criminal convictions to gain employment. Um, And one of the key things that helps prevent re-offending in future by um, people with a criminal record is having a job. So (laughs) it's really important to try and support people into employment that have criminal convictions. Certainly I would like to hope that uh, perhaps we are moving into uh, a world where we're asking more questions about things like statistical discrimination. And one question I wanted to ask you was how your perspective on statistical discrimination might have changed since you published your PhD, which was four years ago. Are you seeing uh, much change regarding how we consider statistical discrimination? I mean, one thing that we often ask on the PhD is this question of sort of where is the hope, which I know is quite a big question, especially with a PhD that is so philosophical in nature. But I just wondered if you had had much reflection on uh, statistical discrimination in the time between your publishing it and now and, and change you you might be seeing or might not be seeing. I think one thing that I'm noticing is changes in technology and ways to gather data and just the amounts of data that can be gathered mean that um, there's more opportunity to uh, evaluate people on the basis of dynamic data than there used to be. So for example, in the tertiary education context, especially when it comes to using online learning or using online platforms where students are maybe learning in person but also going and doing stuff online as well, 
there's lots of data that can be gathered there that um, can provide a picture of how students go about their learning and those activities can be mapped onto how well they're doing sort of successes and failures and things and that information can be fed back to students so it, it, you might get something on a, um, a dashboard for example on an online learning platform which says you're this far through the course other students at this point in the course who've been that far through have had a good chance of success you know keep on going and you're likely to to get there so it can give that sort of feedback or it can give you like a bit of a red light saying you know you're this far through the course other students and previous things who've been that far through have struggled to make it to the end of the course so here are some ways that you can try and catch up in the course so it's looking at group risk statistics as it were but trying to feed it back to the individual to help benefit them and looking at quite dynamic statistics instead. So I guess ultimately and this is my my conclusion feel free to to say whether you uh, buy into it or not I guess the optimist the hopeful uh, opinion would be that you know as technology changes and we were able to draw correlation between data sets of people the kind of power can be used for good I suppose <laughs> if used in the right way and uh, the, the data is used with good intentions and ultimately for the benefit of people uh, the optimist in me would say well as data and technology improves we can figure out where the links are and and allow people to to succeed now whether that happens is maybe another question, but I think there probably is hope within statistical discrimination. And as you mentioned in the PhD, you know, there are reasons where statistical discrimination is morally permissible. And mm -hmm. while on the surface, because I mean, in particular, that word discrimination uh, is associated with such negative things and mm -hmm. for good reason, uh, it, it can be a tool that if used correctly, uh, can ultimately be a benefit in some situations, even effect can also be misused in other situations. Yeah, no, I think I agree. There are definitely situations in which it can be used to benefit not just wider society, but also the individual in question. A big thank you to Vanessa for coming on to PhD Impact and having a chat with us. If you're looking to learn more, you can have a read of Vanessa's PhD, which can be found in the bio for this episode. On the next episode of PhD Unpacked, we talked to Dr. Adrian Everest about her PhD, Voices from the Family Violence Landscape, Gifts of Experiences, Understandings and Insights from the Heart of the Sector. The, one of the impacts of colonisation is being the, a lack of the cultural connection, which are pr protective factors, support factors around some of these things that can happen. And because of colonisation, they can't draw on that. They're isolated from those supports that they would traditionally have. To keep up to date with the various podcasts and projects that Coalesce are producing, head to at CoalesceNZ on Instagram. And for more from us, it's at PhD Unpacked on Instagram. And before I go, big love to Wellington Access Radio for the interview spot. I hope you enjoyed this ASMR. Ma te wa.